are in Boston. You're doing some sightseeing. You're walking along. The clouds are getting heavier and darker. So you start to make your way back to your hotel, to your friend's room, wherever you're staying. And you're just thinking, okay, God, just hold off the rain just a few more minutes. But then you smell that cloud and wet leaf smell. And you feel through the thick air that thread of cold air that cuts through it. And you walk faster. Please, just a couple more minutes, God. At least let me get to the bus stop. And then you hear the rustle at the top of the trees. And you hear that plank, plank, plank on the gutters. And it's coming. And the heavens open up and the deluge just hits. And you're thinking, seriously, God, two minutes, two minutes and I would have made it to the bus stop. You couldn't hold off for two minutes. And you're looking down, huddling, trying to get out of the rain and you notice something on the sidewalk that you didn't notice before the rain. There's poetry appearing as the sidewalk gets wet. Langston Hughes, Elizabeth McKim. Some of the poems you know, some of them you don't. But all of a sudden, you're not quite as concerned with getting home because in the sun, the poetry didn't appear. But in the rain, as the cement grew wet, the poetry showed up. In our Christian life, there are going to be times when we get rained on, when the world is just gonna rain its worst, its insults, when people close to us and people, just the media in general, we are going to feel hostility toward us. And our question is, how do we respond to that? Are we going to chance staying in the rain? Because maybe when we stay in the rain, something beautiful will come of it. Some poetry that we never see, saw before. Or are we just gonna put our heads down and get back to the comforts of our hotel or our home as quickly as we can and not even notice what that poetry might be? I have heard things personally, things like, you know, it's funny how people who are religious just tend to stick with whatever religion they grew up in. Or things like, you know, I don't know how anybody could believe in something that sends people to hell. Or things like, well, the only thing we know for certain is that we can't know anything. I've heard these things. I have seen stories in the, in the media, stories of Christians, and to be fair, some Christians <laughs> act this way, of Christians just being judgmental, of being naive, of just this angry group of people. How do we respond to this, to these kinds of accusations in our life. Today, as we finish up our Acts series, we're gonna to turn to Acts 23. 
And we're going to read a story of Paul responding to personal accusations and religious accusations against him and against the heart of Christianity. And we're going to look at how did Paul respond to this. We're going to um, start out, we're going to back up just a little bit from the reading that we had today. Um, we're going to start in chapter 22, verse 30. Now remember, last week, Jason had preached on when Paul was arrested because of this whole mob incident. So he had submitted to the church. He had done something. He had went through this um, Jewish rite to show that he was not against Judaism, that he, in fact, believed that Christianity flowed out of Judaism, and he wanted to make sure that there was a unity in the church there. So he goes through this thing. Toward the end of it, he gets accused of bringing Gentiles into places where Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple. He gets accused of just being anti-Jewish. A whole mob stirs up, and so this Roman tribune, who's in charge of keeping the peace, sweeps in, takes Paul out, and is trying to figure out what is going on? And so here, here's the tribune. But on the next day, so this is the day after Paul is taken by the tribune, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. This is the Sanhedrin. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so just a quick word on the Sanhedrin, the group of about 70 men who were... Um, made up of different, we could call them denominations, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they are made up of some of the priests, some of the experts in the law, but these guys are in charge of political, legal, and spiritual rulings for the Jewish people. And Paul is going to be brought in front of them. The Sanhedrin, this is the sixth time that we know of from our scriptures that the Sanhedrin has had to meet about claims on Christ, or who Christ is. The first time was when Christ was still alive and he had just um, raised Lazarus from the, light, from the dead. And the Sanhedrin meets and they say, we got to do something about this guy. Let's catch him and kill him. The second time they meet was Jesus' trial, which as we all know did not go well for Jesus. The third time was when Peter and John were preaching the gospel and the Sanhedrin comes together and they leave them with a strong warning and it says they wish they had more evidence that they could more severely punish them. The fourth time they arrested some other apostles for preaching the gospel and they beat them severely. The fifth time was the first martyr of the church, Stephen. This is the sixth time. I don't know, to know if you realize that theme going on, but things are a bit ominous here for Paul. They don't look good. And there we have verse 23. Looking intently at the council. The Greek word here for looking intently is not just I'm making eye contact as a good speaker. This is this idea of Paul looks out and he assesses the spiritual nature, the character of the people standing in front of him. When he's looking out, he's not just blindly going, okay, here are a bunch of people who are accusing me, who always accuse Christianity, and I have to just protect myself and defend ourselves. He's looking out and noticing, who are the people to whom I'm talking? What are their desires? What are their fears? Who are they like? 
So the first thing I want to point out that we can learn from Paul is when, these, when people are bringing accusations against us, rather than just blindly responding, the first thing we need to do is really look at these people. Look at who they are. Look at what their desires are. Look at why they're responding this way. My grandfather rejected Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with it. And he never told us why. After he died, my grandmother told us why it was. And it was he had a hurtful experience when he was a child. But it takes looking at somebody. Because to sit there and try and engage my grandfather on apologetics or some intellectual conversation didn't interest him. He didn't care about that. He had been hurt. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a conversation thinking this is going to be a philosophical conversation. This is going to be about how I can prove to this person that Christianity has some historical merit. And the conversation took a turn over here because as much as up front that person might have looked like they were hostile against Christianity as a philosophy, at heart it was really about something else. One person told me she didn't want Christianity because she didn't want to leave her family. Or for somebody else it was about an experience they had with actually another religion. We have to look at the people. We have to see who they are, and we have to see where they are. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers. The second thing Paul does is he puts them himself on equal footing with them. Now, here's the interesting thing about Paul. He was a Jew. He wasn't rejecting Judaism. He was still a Jew. And he's addressing a group of Jews. And in fact, if you look at where Paul was 20 years ago, he was on this trajectory that he could have very well been on this Sanhedrin. Had it not been for his Damascus experience, he could have been sitting with those 70 men, passing judgment on other believers. And I think Paul held that with him. If he knew... I could just as easily be there as I am here. And the second thing I want us to take away is when we are talking with others, whether personally or in groups who are hostile with us, we're not talking to them in an us versus them experience. It is not, I'm superior to you, I have something that you don't have. It is, we have experienced the grace of God and we want to extend that grace to others. I want to read to you a tiny bit of a testimony that I read this week on Christianity Today. She calls her testimony, My Train Wreck Conversion. As a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then I somehow became one. Before she became a Christian, this is how she describes her her life and her views. 
Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. Then she, in response to a lot of hostility she had been getting from Christians, wrote an inflammatory letter to a newspaper about Christians. And one response stood out to her, written by a pastor in her town. Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was as clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. Now, she makes it clear that she became a believer because of her reading of the Bible, of her encountering who God is. But... Where she first started reading the Bible as the textbook of all those people over there. When Ken and Floyd became her friends and welcomed her and no longer put her on an us versus them mentality, but on equal footing, she started reading the Bible more openly. No longer as something that person over there reads but it's something I am reading. Her, her reading of the Bible brought her to Christ, but the Christians that she encountered and who encountered her in a loving way enabled her to read it open-minded. So, we come to, to those who are hostile against us, understanding, looking at where they are, and approaching them on equal footing. Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So here's his defense. I have lived, and one thing we're missing here in the, in the translation is I've lived as a citizen. When Paul talks about living as a citizen, he's talking about living as a citizen of God's kingdom. I have lived as a citizen of God's kingdom with all good conscience. Now, he's not arguing that he's perfect. I've done everything right. And there's nothing anybody can say against me. What he's arguing here is as a citizen of God's kingdom, and he's using some language that the Jews would understand because they saw themselves as citizens of God's kingdom. As a citizen of God's kingdom, I have lived with a good conscience, meaning I have lived in a way that is, that is fluid with God's kingdom. That, that flows out of God's kingdom work. In other words, Christianity is not about anti-God and anti-God's work. He's trying to make these connections with them. He's, Paul does something here that I think we need to pay attention is number one, he's standing firm. 
He's standing firm in Christianity. He's not backing down. He's not saying, okay, whatever. He's not shutting down and shutting up and just letting them make their own assumptions about what Christianity is. But neither is he standing up and defending himself personally against those personal hostile attacks. He's standing up and talking about Christianity and those connections that he can make. He's using this as an opportunity to share the gospel. Because if I were Paul, what I would be doing right now against these accusations that he had brought Gentiles in the temple were, um, excuse me, did you see me do this? Are there any witnesses about this? No, I didn't think so. Can we be done here? I would be getting all up in arms because they're making false accusations. Paul doesn't even address that. He stands up there and wants to make these connections with what Christianity is. When we are standing in front of people, with people, with loved ones, with family members, we can stand firm in who we are as believers. But we also don't have to personally defend every little thing that they are accusing us of. What we can do is just continue to share the hope of Christianity, to make connections of what Christianity actually is. Okay, so here's where it gets good. Verse two, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. This is a personal insult on the mouth. I reject what you are saying. And besides this, it's actually illegal according to Jewish law. Because Jewish law says you can't punish somebody who hasn't been tried and condemned. Paul hasn't even been formally accused of anything. And yet here Ananias, the high priest, is slapping him. So Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Okay, so whitewashed wall, pretty common insult of um, hypocrite. Something that the wall is deteriorating, but you just paint it white and it looks fine. Paul calls Ananias out, and here's what I love. I love that Luke includes this because... All right, so Paul is an amazing historic figure, pillar of Christianity, you know, first really big theologian. He's written so much of our New Testament, blah, blah, blah. I don't know that Paul and I could really be friends because I don't imagine Paul to ever just, you know, sit down and have a glass of white wine or red wine or any kind of wine with his friends. I don't really sit him, see him, just shooting the breeze, enjoying a cup of coffee. He's so intense all the time. I don't know that I could be friends with this. But what I love that Luke shows us here is a little bit of Paul's temper because he just kind of explodes on them. And I think, oh, Paul's real. <laughs> he is a person. He does make mistakes. He kind of just spat that out. And Luke includes that. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil 
of a ruler of your people. Now, there are two options what Paul might be doing. Number one is he may not know that that was the high priest, at least by face. Keep in mind, Paul has been out of Jerusalem for the past five years, and really he's been out of Jewish politics for the past 20 years. So he probably at some point had heard of this Ananias high priest and some of the goings on with Ananias, but he probably didn't know him by face, wouldn't have known that is Ananias there. And so he probably just thought he was kind of spatting out to somebody who was just on the Sanhedrin, not to the high priest. The other option is he was speaking ironically here. Oh, I didn't know that somebody who would break the law like that is the high priest. Either way, what he says next is what is key for us. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He self-corrects. And he ends up showing respect, even to somebody who doesn't deserve that respect as a person. So there's this interesting combination of Paul is standing firm in Christianity. He's not backing down. But he's also going to show respect to the people who are accusing him. Ananias, what we know of him, he was a wicked person. At this point, the high priest is not appointed by other priests. It is appointed by the Roman government. It is a political position. It's no longer one of religious integrity. And Ananias accepts bribes. He pays bribes. He stole from the tithing while other ordinary priests were starving. He used assassination to accomplish his own end game. He um, was a very violent man. He's more godfather than God's representative. And yet, Paul shows him respect, not because Ananias as a person deserved that respect, but because Ananias in the role that he was in, in the role that God ultimately appointed him to be in, deserved that respect. Paul submitted not to Ananias as a person, but to God's way. We can stand firm in our Christianity, but do so in a way that is respectful to authority and respectful to others, even when they are hostile to God. It's, it's a hard balance and I think it's one that we're not used to, number one, as Americans in general, because we kind of have this cultural thing of kicking against those higher-ups. Number two, as Protestants, because it's in our name, we're meant to protest. And I get this. Chris calls me a rebel without a cause. I prefer to think I have many causes. It is much easier sometimes to just be rebellious. To stand firm and submit is a really hard combination. It's one that takes an unbelievable, an unbelievable amount of humility. 
And it's one that trusts in who God is and what he's doing rather than who I am and what I want done. And this is what Paul is able to do. He is able to trust what God might be doing even when things don't go according to his plan. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now remember, Paul is able to look out at his people and know where they are and know what's going on. And at this point, he recognizes, I am not going to get a fair hearing for Christianity for this whole entire group. The Sadducees were the denomination who believed there was absolutely no resurrection. Once you died, you died, and that was it, because they only held to the first five books of the Bible, and there's no actual mention of resurrection in those first five books. So for them, there's no resurrection. It's all about what God is doing politically with Israel. The Pharisees, however, did believe in the resurrection of the dead. Paul was a Pharisee. He had a love for the Pharisees and a connection with the Pharisees. And one thing that is interesting is we tend to hear the word Pharisees and we think, oh, those are the bad guys. Paul didn't look out and say, oh, those are the bad guys. Paul looks out and says, I still have hope for them. Something can still be done here. In fact, Paul says, I am a Pharisee, not I was a Pharisee and now I'm a Christian. He still saw himself as a Pharisee. And so in this time when he's getting such rejection, I mean even physical rejection, he looks out and he sees there are still some here that I can make a connection with. And he changes his tactic Part of his tactic is to kind of split them so that he doesn't have to have this hearing in front of the Sanhedrin but will be taken to the Roman government. But part of it is also to bring out what is the core message of Christianity. The core message is the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And he wants to make that clear because he sees that there are still some there. We are not called to convert people. We are called to be witnesses. We are not called to transform all of America into a Christian nation. We are called to be witnesses to Christ. And this is what we can do. We can continue, no matter what, no matter what is going on personally with us, no matter what is going on culturally, no matter what is going on in the world, we can continue to proclaim the hope of the resurrection. We can continue to find those who still want to know what that hope is, who still want to know about resurrection. We can proclaim that hope and know that God will do something with it. 
When he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose. Paul has this great talent for starting riots. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down because, just side note, the soldiers in the tribune couldn't actually be in the group. They had to observe from a distance. Um, to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul was faithful, but things are not going well. And we need to be aware of that. We can be faithful people. We can do everything right. But that may not guarantee the end. This end for this story. Obviously, the end of the entire story is guaranteed. But we don't know in each situation what is going to happen, how God is going to use it. And in this particular situation, we can be faithful. And we may still feel like, it might still look like to our eyes that we failed. But, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When we respond out of the hope of the gospel in the face of hostility, Jesus responds to us with comfort. Here's the other thing I forget about Paul when I'm reading about him and I see this big, strong figure that the church for 2,000 years has commended as being one of the firsts, one of the biggest. He was really controversial back then, outside of the church and even somewhat inside of the church. As Jason has mentioned, they didn't always know what to do with Paul. And I think that must have been a really lonely place for him. But God came and comforted him. Sometimes we feel like we are just trying to do everything right. And we're still just getting spit on and rained on. And we feel alone. But the living God still comforts his people. Jesus said, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, Paul, what you did was right. You did what was right. I know they're still rejecting, but you did what was right. So you must testify also in Rome. Now, back in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit, so he feels led by the spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. I can imagine Paul here in chains after this and going, okay, I'm pretty sure 
God wanted me to come here to Jerusalem, and I'm pretty sure God wants me to go to Rome, but now I'm in chains. And Jesus says, that vision still is going to happen. It's just not going to happen as Paul probably imagined it. Paul probably imagined another missionary journey on his way to Rome. And in fact, he imagined going past Rome to Spain and beyond. It's still going to happen that he goes to Rome. It's just going to be in chains. God has a mission for us. It just might not always happen the way that we imagine it. Paul was able to take the gospel to some of the highest of the highest in Rome. In fact, when Acts closes, it closes on a cliffhanger. Paul is still in chains. But he's not dead yet. And it hints that Paul is going to take the gospel to Caesar himself. The highest known power in the entire world. God has work for Paul. And God has work for us. And all he asks is that we stand in the rain and we witness to Christ. And maybe, just maybe, as we stand in the rain, getting wet, water running down the backs of our shirts, our socks all squishy and gross, we might see a bit of poetry showing up on the sidewalk. I shouldn't have said I was going to tell the story, but because I knew I was going to cry. When my grandfather, oh my goodness, okay, I'm okay. When my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer, at this point we had already moved to Texas. My mom sent him a letter talking to him about Christianity. He never acknowledged it. He didn't want to talk about it. And then one day, the pastor of the church where we used to go in New Jersey was driving by my grandfather's house. And he just felt God say, stop and go in. He knew who my grandfather was. And he stopped and walked in and he said, Tom, today's your day. And my grandfather started crying and he became a believer. Six weeks before he died a whole lifetime of rejection and when he died and we were going through his stuff my mom found the letter she wrote that he had kept it with him we don't know how God is going to use the things that we do we have no idea it may look so despairing but God is so much greater than we can imagine Let's pray. God, this world, since the time of the fall, has rejected you and continues to reject you. And as your people, we feel that. And I pray 
that we will stand firm in Christianity while being respectful of others and loving toward them. I pray that our words, our actions, our love will not be wasted, but that you in your sovereignty will redeem it and will use it and will bring something beautiful because of it, even if we don't see it. I pray these things in your son's name, amen.